so it it is normal for breathing to speed up for breathing rate to to adjust as it needs to to find sort of a minimal effort of breathing and that's really how our breathing generally adjusts is to minimize the, the metabolic cost of the effort right our body finds the easiest breathing in most circumstances and maybe that is metabolically efficient it's good at at minimizing let's, let's say the caloric cost of breathing um, but that's not necessarily optimal for our psychology for, for psychophysiology okay eric thank you for coming thank you for being here my pleasure it's always it's always a pleasure to meet another eric h you know yeah <laughs> no i'm i'm really looking forward to this i uh i came across your study well, i don't know a month or two ago basically i think when it when it first came out and uh i was really excited and, and interested because i mean in, in the world of breathwork there's a lot of sort of I don't know, almost like secretism and, and mystification and everyone kind of wants it to, uh, to pretend like they have some kind of magic sauce. Right. And, uh, right. it was, it was really refreshing just to see how you sort of systematically go through all the different aspects of breathing and specifically apply it to running, which is something I, I really enjoy. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going into detail about, about the study and just about your work in general and sort of what, your personal story as well, where you're coming from and, and what motivates you to do this work. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I had a similar motivation, you know, I feel in, in the breathing space, there seems to be a lot of, yeah, sort of compartmentalization, right. And a bit of, a bit of secrecy or, or, um, at least like distinctiveness that, 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 seems to separate worlds more than connects them, right? Where we know that there's been so much work in breathing in these different fields. And, and for some reason, they, they seem rather siloed. And so a big motivation for us was just to try to connect those things. And I, th I think, I think that's, a, that's an honorable and desirable path in any field to try to, to, try to bring things together and to try to summarize them for... Um, hopefully the greater good without self-aggrandizing too much. And yeah. so that was uh, a big motivation for, for me and for our continued work. And it sounds like that resonates with you. So no, yeah, super no. cool to, to share that. Great. Great. So, so just to give people some context, the, the study is called breath tools and it's specifically focused on breathing and running. Right. But I, mm -hmm. my understanding is this is, this is sort of an entry point. It's not, there's no reason why your findings are limited just to running. I mean, it can be for any kind of activity or just for, for basically any, any human who, who moves. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's kind of a, a title that I've, I've um, acquired for my own work that is, is more than just one study, but hopefully encompassing um, uh, a, a larger body of work that we're doing mainly on how to measure breathing so mm -hmm. measurement methods how to how to interpret breathing pattern um not only like different sensors and systems to measure it but also yeah sort of the the terminology and how to how to bring together these different components in a useful way both mm -hmm. like clinically and also for the layman 
Um, and then also, yeah, sort of how to, how to improve breathing, right? So um, breathing strategies to hopefully improve exercise performance, but perhaps even more importantly, exercise enjoyment, because we saw a big gap and in the, in the project that I'm working on, there's, um, there's a, a good amount of background work suggesting that a, a number of, of exercisers and people just engaged in sport um, still feel that there's, there's, there's a lot of confusion around how to, how to approach it and, 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 and feel better during sport, right? There are a lot of people do sports to, to get better, but more people do sports to feel better. And, and there's a, I think a lack of support in that, in that desire for a lot of people doing exercise, whether it be running or, or, or swimming or cycling or what have you. Yeah. So um, for plenty of people, for example, um, their, their smartwatch might tell them heart rate and pace and lots of other useful items if you're training for a race mm-hmm. or, or trying to get better, sure but it, it doesn't necessarily assist you or guide you towards feeling better in that run towards, towards finding a, a pace that is perhaps sustainable to, as I like to say, put a smile to your miles. Nice. And, and that I think is a really cool and, and sort of noble goal, although, although thus far is still, still quite challenging. Yeah. So that's really, to me, the purpose of, of this breath tools project is, is somehow to, to help people, yeah, put a smile on and, and get rid of that. I don't know. I see that, that grimace on so many people's face running, you know, just churning out those Ks with, with, with this pain face. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but of course, the solution is more complicated than simply telling somebody to smile. So breathing is simply an avenue into that that we've been um, trying to unpack over yeah. the last few years. Yeah, and, and arguably those two goals actually dovetail really <clears throat> excuse me dovetail really well because the more people enjoy it the more they're going to do it and obviously the, the better they'll get over time and even at, at really elite levels you know it gets complex because enjoyment isn't necessarily what we think of as just like pure pleasure and fun you can have this this sort of more complex form of enjoyment of really pushing hard and, and reaching your your limits and enjoy that process as well and i i think you know the at more elite levels of performance, people really do enjoy pushing themselves in, in those ways. And so it's, I don't know, I think it's just interesting to think about the, the combination of the sort of physiological components of breathing and the psychological components and how those two might combine, you know, but yeah. I think we can get into that in more, more detail later on. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. So, I mean, specifically uh, maybe, we could just go over the the sort of different ways that you define of measuring what is breathing, right? Because we, I mean, it seems very simple and in some ways it is, but there are, there are different components to it that all need to be taken into account. So, so in the paper, I mean, you, yeah. you talk about rate, depth, whether it's nasal or mouth breathing, active exhale, the sync or how it's linked up to the movement, the strength and the hold whether or not there is mm-hmm. one, how long it is, those kind of things. So, I mean, yeah. if you're up for it, I'd, I'd like to just kind of go through all those different components and, and really try and make this material, you know, as accessible to, to people as possible. And, you know, this could be, again, it could be for a very serious runner or athlete who's really looking to maximize performance, or it could just be someone who's, you know, maybe interested more in the breathwork side of things and 
kind of curious mm-hmm. about how they might be able to apply that to their activity or someone who's, you know, just a sort of sporadic exerciser and uh, thinks it's kind of fun to, to play around with and, you know, see how breathing can change things up for them. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So in my experience, a lot of people have, have tried to stay away from this or oversimplified breathing mm-hmm. because it can get quite complex fairly quickly. And I noticed that in, in the scientific literature and then also in yoga, breathwork, et cetera, people use different terminology. So I should acknowledge first that, that um, all of those are valid. People can use their own names. And, and frankly, there's been... Um, names for a lot of different components of breathing that go back thousands of years. And I, I can't, um, you know, it's not in my uh, responsibility to try to change those, but yeah. we've come up with our own names to try to combine some of those things and to um, choose, I think the easiest to understand and the most sort of comprehensive definitions, you know, amongst these different worlds. So when, when I think about breathing, I usually, I like to call it breathing pattern because I think it is a pattern. There are, of course, rhythms and tendencies and an individuality to it that deserves that title. That deserves, it deserves to be called a pattern because it is more than simply the how fast you breathe or how deep you breathe. There's all these different aspects that, that, um, that are quite characteristic to the individual, to the activity that can be measured and, and are worth discussing. So the, the two most simple sort of variables of breathing would be frequency or rate. So breathing rate, how many breaths per minute and depth, which is usually clinically called the tidal volume or the, the liters of air per, moved per breath. Okay. Right? And those are quite simple. And, and those have a, a reciprocal and inverse relationship with overall ventilation. So how many liters per minute? Well, you can, you can of course increase that by breathing faster or by breathing deeper. And your body's pretty good at regulating that ventilation to exactly what you need in most situations, right? So it, that, that amount of total ventilation increases substantially when you start exercising. And some people increase that primarily via faster breathing by breathing rate. Some people increase that by deeper. Usually it's some combination of both. And, and then at some point, tidal volume or the depth plateaus, and we can only ventilate more by breathing faster. However, there's a couple other components worth deserving, right? So the timing of breathing is more than just breathing rate. It's also the, the inhale timing versus the exhale timing, right? How long is the inhale versus the exhale? Or I like to call that breath ratio right? So is it yeah. equal? In most people, it's usually equal, even, even at rest, maybe 40, 60 inhale to, to exhale percent. Um, and that can, have, of course, be manipulated, which is, which is super interesting and has important um, um, consequences for the organism, for the autonomic nervous system, as we, as we know from plenty of uh, breathwork techniques and of yogic breathing techniques. We also talk about coordination, which has, to me, two main components. One is the uh, thoracal lumbar coordination. If we think about in a two-compartment model, the, the thorax or the, the chest, everything above, let's say, the, the bottom of the xiphoid right here at about the bra line, we have 
we have that thoracic component and we have the abdominal component or the, in this case, the, we call it the lumbar. Um, that thoracal lumbar coordination is the timing. Do those move at the same time when you breathe? Or do they move at a different time? Where we know that theoretically synchronized components is, is optimal. We know at least in a clinical sense, um, a lack of synchronization there is associated with, um, with poor clinical outcomes. And the other element of coordination being, and I, I struggle to find a consistent definition here in the literature, but I call it thoracal lumbar depth. So where does that depth come from? Are, are we more getting more um, depth of breathing from the chest or from the belly? And of course, in, in, in breath work and in um, yogic breathing techniques, there's, there's lots of focus on belly breathing or abdominal breathing, diaphragmatic breathing that seeks to manipulate this. Um, and, and we can measure this with a number of different variables, which is super cool. Um, and it has pretty important implications. And we know also what the natural tendency of this is uh, during exercise as well, where, where the chest usually contributes about... 70% at least of the measurable breathing to ventilation. Mm -hmm. We also talk about can, um, airway. Yeah. Can we Go stop ahead. right there? Just a bunch of questions have come up. Um, I want to dive into a little bit yeah. more depth before we, we move on. So, so just, I mean, just starting with rate. So you, you say, um, you know, the, the body does a pretty good job of finding its sort of optimal rate and it just sort of adjusts based on, on the needs. Right. So generally, Okay. Okay. So, I mean, we start exercising, we start running naturally breath rate increases the, but the, you know, we can intervene there consciously. Right. And so yep. if we, if we start breathing at an accelerated rate, we're going to start exciting the, the sympathetic nervous system. Right. And we're going to set off a whole other chain of physiological uh, effects that aren't necessarily going to make us run more efficiently or maybe for, for like a short burst or sprint might be okay. But if we're talking about aerobic exercise might be kind of productive. So as far as, as someone looking to make a long run easier, say an, an aerobic effort, right? So we're not, we're not going past our aerobic threshold We're we're staying in a, you know, a, a good pace, but not, not really getting that intense kind of muscle burn, not panting. Right. Um, what kind of breathing rate would be, would you recommend there? I should be careful here because in our discussions with a number of experts on breathing, you know, there's, there's a general consensus. Sorry, there's a car behind me. That's fine. There's a general consensus that like breathing is well-regulated and does what it's supposed to in healthy individuals most of the time. Hmm. And, and many of the experts believe that we should not manipulate this purposefully in healthy people when they're exercising. Hmm. I mean, one of the things we've done in the paper though is demonstrate why that's wrong very often and why many people could benefit from manipulating that. And for example, in this case, breathing slower in specific circumstances and you know, that slower by definition being somewhat uh, more nuanced perhaps than, than simply breathing slow. I, so it, it is normal for breathing to speed up, for breathing rate to, to adjust as it needs to, to find sort of the minimal effort of breathing. 
Mm-hmm. And that's really how our breathing generally adjusts is to minimize the, the metabolic cost of the effort, right? Our body finds the easiest breathing in most circumstances. And maybe that is metabolically efficient. It's good at, at minimizing, let's, let's say, the caloric cost of breathing. Um, but that's not necessarily optimal for our psychology, for, for psychophysiology. Because yes, that fast breathing triggers a sympathetic response. It also decreases simply ventilatory efficiency at some degree. There's not enough time to extract the oxygen from each breath. And so it actually can lead to a, a, a cascading sort of chain of events that begets more fast breathing. Mm-hmm. In general, yeah, we, we found that a lot of people can benefit from slower breathing. There is a limit to that. You cannot simply slow your breathing to six breaths per minute as done at, at rest during resonant frequency breathing, for example, while you're running. That's very, very difficult simply because we can't breathe deep enough that that breathing continues to be efficient. It, we find a, a, a limit very quickly if we breathe too slow during exercise, but we found that breathing just like 10 or 20% slower can be super useful for people. And, mm-hmm. and part of the reason it's useful is because it actually deliberately limits that intensity. So if you want to go for an easy jog, a lot of people, especially beginners, for example, they'll find that they run too fast when they start, right? On fresh legs, often people start in the first one or two kilometers, the first mile, people, people actually find a, a, a red zone a little too easily, and then they struggle for the rest of the run, where if they started with a slower breathing, that actually imposes a deliberate limit on the intensity and therefore can sort of set the pace for a more sustainable run at that easy intensity that somebody's seeking in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so the, it seems like so I like slow breathing for exactly that reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it, it seems like there's, there's kind of two components here. One is to make, to sort of put like the natural brakes on and make sure you're running at a sustainable pace. But then another is when you're training to increase your aerobic efficiency, to increase your CO2 tolerance. And then in my understanding is you want to push as hard as you can doing breathing as slow as you can, right? Which can get very uncomfortable. Um, you know, even doing, doing breath holds while running. And, um, you know, I, and I know a lot of elite athletes are using this kind of training. They're very secretive about it for good reasons. Um, but, you know, you see even some people running like hundred meter sprint fully nasal nasal breathing even in until the last maybe 10 meters or something and you know just how many hours of intense and brutal training are behind that when they've just been pushing and pushing and pushing to be able to get to such high levels of performance but still maintaining that physiological calm you know oh yeah and it's it's pretty impressive oh yeah well you're crossing into two other potential breathing strategies here that deserve their own, their own discussion for sure. So yes, breathing rate can also be manipulated to purposely underbreathe. Hypoventilation training or, or yeah, breath holding uh, is, is, is another way to use slow breathing that can, that can actually do sort of the opposite. So we should be clear that in, at least in the rate strategy outlined in the paper, we recommend slow breathing as a way to make the run feel easier. Mm-hmm. 
right? Because it can, it can support mental calm. It, it sort of puts a, a governor on the run, right? It helps us run maybe a little bit slower, a little bit more consistently. It, it reduces that sympathetic activation, perhaps enhances parasympathetic activation. Slowing the breathing so much that, that you cannot ventilate for as, as much actually uh, CO2 clearance as you require and oxygen as, you, as your muscles require, that's extremely unpleasant and a very potent training mechanism actually that, that, I mean, swimmers have known about this for decades and only now are we starting to, um, to learn the potential that it has for other sports such as cycling, running, uh, specifically high intensity intermittent sports, maybe like a uh, football or running. Um, that's incredibly powerful and also not for the faint of heart. I do this fairly often and it hurts. Um, uh, yeah, but also an interesting sort of, yeah, different use of breathing rate to, to yeah, manipulate the organism and, and tweak physiology mm-hmm. in such a way. Um, super, super cool. I would, I would not recommend that for sort of the psychological enjoyment of exercise, perhaps unless you really like that type two fun of, yeah, that feel, felt great once I was done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and I, I think in, in like MMA and that, that sort of world, it's, it's definitely being used a lot more as well. And, and you know, uh, what was his name? Uh, Hicks and Gracie you know, who started mm-hmm. the BJJ, he was, again, gets into very little detail about his breathwork, but it's, it's clear that he used breathwork training a lot in order to, to gain a competitive advantage and staying in the parasympathetic state, even if it's just mm-hmm. 20 seconds or 30 seconds longer than your opponent, that gives you a huge competitive advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and what I found just sort of anecdotally is that when I slow down my rate, my depth automatically increases in order to compensate. Right. And so I guess my, my question is, is that something like if, if I'm allowing the depth to compensate for the rate, am I sort of negating the effects of slowing the rate? Should I be worried about no. that? No, I don't think so at all. So, so yeah, like we touched on before your that's a natural reciprocal relationship. You know, your, your, that CO2 is such a potent stimulus to the central and peripheral centers in your body. It's, it's such a strong stimulus for that urge to breathe that, uh, that depth of breathing automatically expands to, to provide what your body needs in the circumstances. That's only when you slow your breathing so much that the depth cannot expand enough to provide the oxygen that it becomes sort of under breathing or hypoventilation. But in most, in most circumstances of, yeah, low to even moderate intensity exercise, you, you slow your breathing and yeah, it'll, it'll, um, that depth of breathing expands to provide what your body needs. So that does not negate those, those benefits at all. You still get those, we'll say psychophysiological benefits of the, the autonomic nervous system manipulation of, of the calm of the improved decision-making that we know is associated with slow breathing. And you also get the biochemical benefits of enhanced oxygen extraction from the breath because of lower dead space. And there's probably some biomechanical improvements as well, since greater depth of breathing requires greater recruitment of the diaphragm, which increases just in general, the, the core muscular core musculature activation, which is imp- improved 
postural activity, you know, reduced low risk of lower back pain. So there's plenty of benefits that you still get by breathing slower and compensating with the deeper breath. That, that, that actually is, is almost a requirement that, that is expected to, to glean such benefits. Yeah. yeah. And so, so when we talk about the, the deeper breath, we're talking about, and just going back to what you're saying about the thoracic versus, versus lumbar, it's going to sort of tend you toward a deeper lumbar breathing, right? It's going to work, work out your diaphragm. It's going to increase your lung capacity potentially by, by just using them to their, their fullest extent. And, and then I imagine over time, that's going to have an effect on the coordination between thoracic yeah. and lumbar. Not the relative depth. It should. It should. This has been, I think, relatively understudied. So yeah, when we talk about greater depth of breathing, there's actually three main aspects there that I would touch on. I mean, one is just the absolute volume, right? More or less air. A deeper mm -hmm. breath, yeah, should be more air, but that could that could come from the chest or that could come from from the abdominal compartment right from the from the uh, diaphragm and also from the the external obliques which are our main expiratory muscles it's not so easy to cue or to instruct people to to get that deeper breath from lower down we know that lots of people focus on this at rest lots of breathwork techniques yeah yogic techniques uh, different types of meditation talk about belly breathing and try to cue it you know a lot of manual practitioners do do hands-on work and and other um let's say tactile techniques to try to cue that that diaphragmatic breath but mm -hmm. for us especially during exercise it's not so easy to to get people to focus on that in fact it can be extremely distracting to try to to do that specifically during exercise there's probably a carryover where Teaching people to do this at rest transfers to sport, yeah. Because the cognitive, you know, focus required to to change your breathing compartment during activity is is high. It, it's it's perhaps counterproductive, um, but that but that's a very important one because we know that diaphragmatic breathing is so beneficial for for all those three main main sort of themes that I just touched on the psychophysiology right up here. Mm -hmm the biochemistry, the biomechanics. Uh, mechanically, it's just so much more efficient to breathe from our diaphragm. It's much more fatigue resistant than our chest. I do think, I speculate that deeper breathing for extended durations will naturally shift towards more abdominal and diaphragmatic breathing um, in healthy individuals. But I don't think that that's a given. It does require some focus. Yeah. Yeah, a trick I, I got from Stig Sverenson, he's the Danish free diver, he's got all kinds of world records. He really recommends oh, yeah. doing, uh, he does all kinds of exercises with like a rubber band around your, your belly. Yeah. And so you're, it's like resistance training for your diaphragm, right? And I've experimented with that while I run. So not tying it super mm -hmm. tight, but just having that, it's, it's almost like having, you know, someone's hands on there. It's just a constant yeah. sensory reminder. You have to push against the band and it definitely gets tiring mm -hmm. after a while, but it's, I found it's a really good way to train my system to just get used to that, that sort of opening and closing naturally and, yeah. and, and really activating yeah. the diaphragm. Yeah. I think that tactile feedback is quite valuable and especially, um, especially like 360 degrees, right. Instead of just that anterior, uh, abdomen, which 
you know, you see sometimes in, in yoga and breath work, people putting, let's say a heavy book on their, on over their belly button or whatever to try to get that feeling. But um, some of the most important expansion of the rib cage that the diaphragm is responsible for is also posterior, right? The rib cage that, that those bottom two or three ribs where the diaphragm inserts, you know, is supposed to expand 360 degrees around. So I think that that, that band tied around GI yeah, is potentially a, a very valuable way to get that. Yeah. Um, there's also one that I would love to talk about with you that is really understudied. And this one I want to, I want to look into more personally hmm. is like operating at lower lung volumes. And we touched on this in the paper, but there's really not enough on it. Um, there was a guy in the eighties who was doing a lot of work on this in, uh, in cycling. But if you imagine your lungs as a, as a balloon, the bigger that your lungs are, right? The more air is in your lungs at any one time, the stiffer that they become. Yeah. And this is a normal thing that happens as we, as we breathe harder and harder at high exercise intensities, for example, that balloon often gets bigger. We call it hyperinflation or dynamic hyperinflation. And that is undesirable. At that point, the work of breathing, breathing gets very, very difficult. And an understudied, perhaps purposeful breathing technique that I would also include in sort of deeper breathing here is purposely keeping the lungs smaller or more empty. Mm. And although that could go against maybe that sort of self-correcting theory of breathing, the minimal effort, it seems to be quite valuable for a lot of people by, by you imagine you can get the same sort of expansion just in and out with a smaller balloon. And so squeezing all the air out in the exhales and letting the balloon sort of inflate might actually ease the effort on the, on the inspiratory muscles, keeping that balloon smaller, maybe, maybe just keeping a little bit of the stiffness out of the, out of the lungs and out of the trunk might actually even free us up to be uh, more fluid movers in activity as well. I, I'm, I'm really curious. And I think, I think there has been some work in, in breath work and in, yoga worlds on this idea, but I'm, I'm not well-versed enough to really yeah. know. Yeah. I think that there's, there's whole sort of schools of yoga that are really focused on the exhale and on the hold with, with empty lungs mm -hmm. and doing almost like uh, hypopressive techniques, you know, of really pushing your belly button till it like touches your spine basically, and just really emptying yeah. your lungs as, as fully as possible. And it's, it's definitely, creates a, a psychological and physiological challenge there. But in my experience, at least your body adapts to it fairly quickly. And in my understanding, which I would like to run by you is that when you're forcing that exhale so much, you're, you're basically, you're just, uh, you know, getting rid of more carbon dioxide. So decreasing the, the, the acidity in your body and potentially creating conditions in which your endurance would, would, be better basically um yeah yeah maybe there's probably also something to the self-massage effect of it you know yeah. they talk about this in yoga sports in sports science they don't at all but i think there's probably some value there of of yeah sort of that self-massage with the abdominal wall mm -hmm. um there's we know that in uh, so back to the the breath hold training 
we know that, yeah, a lot of the recommendations now are to do breath holds at end expiratory. Yeah. With yeah. empty lungs. So pushing out all the air and then holding, yeah. which of course manipulates um, gases in a much more aggressive way since you have that, since you have empty lungs, almost no oxygen content. Um, so it sort of speeds up that, that, that breath hold stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, but there's also, there's some mechanoreceptor, some nerve feedback from the lungs when the lungs are empty, that also manipulates things at the, at the psychological, at the psychophysiological level. Mm-hmm. Um, and that probably deserves some discussion too. Yeah. It, it's really uncomfortable, <laughs> like you just said. And, yeah. and although that's you know, uncomfortable at first, there's like many, like many stressful mechanisms done deliberately, it, it could have value for yeah. those, yeah, seeking later comfort or performance improvement or, or what have you. Yeah, um, that's the whole concept so that, of hormesis, right? Yeah. It's, it's uh, acute stress under controlled conditions done consciously. And then your body right. and your mind respond by becoming more resilient. And just basically, I, I mean, the way I understand it, it's a lot of it is through the, through our autonomic nervous system. It's just delaying the onset of the stress response. So it's like, if your body's used to those levels of, of uh, oxygen, for example, low levels of oxygen, mm-hmm. high levels of CO2, and it just gets used to that. Then when you're pushing hard while you're running or swimming or whatever it is, your body's like, oh, well, I've been here before. It's okay. You know, and, and yeah. it, it, it just allows it to keep going. Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah, and sorry. In a sports context, we call that chemosensitivity, right? Sensitivity to CO2. We know that elite athletes have lower chemosensitivity. Mm-hmm. And it's unknown if that's, if that's a result of the many years, thousands of hours of training, mm-hmm. or if that's perhaps a prerequisite for becoming a high performer, as if it's, as if they were born with it and that's, something that goes hand in hand with, with their athletic development. Um, but it's, it's probably trainable and desirable. Um, despite that, it almost seems counterintuitive at, at first glance, right. To be less sensitive to CO2, which is the, the main, you know, driver of the urge to breathe. Why would I want to be less sensitive to that? That's, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Hmm. I, I, th- I think that hormesis is, is exactly part of the principle behind it. And, and also, yeah, to be um, a bit more fatigue, a bit more stress resistant, sort of, yeah. is probably somewhat behind that. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's in the studies that have been done, it seems like there's a lot of overlap between the physical and, and the psychological. So, so when we're talking about stress in a, in the context of sports, you know, we're talking about breathing hard, you know, a lot of muscular activity, whatever, but, but we can also see very similar results when we're talking about emotional stress, you know, from work, from, from, from life in general. And, and to my understanding, I mean, the findings are, are pretty clear that there's a really strong correlation between CO2 tolerance and stress resilience and not just physical stress, but, but physiological, uh, physiological, psychological, you know, every kind of stress. And it's, it's something where it's, I mean, the, the way I've, I've been experimenting with it personally is doing breath work before I go out on a run. So, mm-hmm. so for example, doing the breath hold on the exhale for me, I mean, for everyone is very difficult, um, for me included. And, um, I find it hard to, to, especially if I'm doing like uphill runs or whatever, mm-hmm. it's, it's, 
next to impossible for me to do more than just a couple sets of, of breath hold on the exhale. But I do find if I do some intense breath work before I go for a run, mm-hmm. then when I'm running, then things are easier. Right. So it's, yeah. it's, I think it's, you know, we talk about, okay, breathing and running, right. Okay. But what, what about breathing just before you run breathing while you're mm-hmm. running breathing as a sort of, you know, a, a training the, the respiratory system, the cardiovascular system, as almost like people do strength training for, you know, in, in the gym, you can do strength yep. training for your, your respiratory system as well. Yep. And then it's, you know, what are the protocols that are for increasing strength and, um, you know, basically putting a maximal load on the system so that it's later mm-hmm. more efficient. And then what are the protocols for when you're in, in an actual race or performing and you, you want to make things as efficient as possible and easy as possible. You know, so it seems right. like there's a lot of different components there. It's not oh, just one size. Huge. Yeah. yeah. There's so much to talk about there. So yeah, the bre- breathing during running is its own conversation. And that's what our paper is about yeah. because there's, there's not a lot of, we'll say comprehensive research on that. We, we found it in a, in a bunch of different places, right? Different sports, non sports literature, you know, anecdotal, anecdotal evidence etc outside of activity or, or we'll say just before or after there is actually quite a bit there so the first one you started with is is we would we would call that priming right can can breathing exercises breath work be used to prepare the body for exercise absolutely so a lot of work for example brian mckenzie at shift um patrick McEwen, uh, these guys are working with pro athletes and teams for exactly this purpose and doing a lot of the breath holds like you're like you're talking about um Mm -hmm. with with some very specific performance benefits that are that are quite well established you know one of the biggest ones being um intense 15 minutes before activity can result in a huge dumping of of red blood cells from your spleen into your system so you get Mm -hmm. this this interesting delayed um, um maximum oxygen consumption, this, this basically spike in max VO2, which is a result of that breath hold. It's a, it's a cool sort of um, acute response to the breath hold. And, and notably, the, like, like the, the divers, I forget the, the name, the woman in, in Korea who've been doing this for thousands of years for fishing and, and grabbing things off the ocean floor, they, they've sort of known this for a long time prepping for these big deep water free dives simply by doing some breath holds on dry land before they go down. Yeah. And, and that's, that's flanchic dumping. The spleen blood dumping into the system has been, um, has been measured in these people before, which is super cool. Yeah. After activity at, for recovery, that's also been well established. So we know that breathing can be used to, to downregulate after exercise to aid in recovery and to aid potentially in, in um, let's say minimizing oxygen debt in, in reestablishing, you know, circadian rhythm. If you're, if you're breathing or if you're exercising late at night, for example. Um, and we've, we've been doing this actually in some of our studies where we have a, we call it a Ruhephase of Deutsch in German, a, a quiet phase, five minutes of just quiet breathing before and after activity to see how that affects people. And, and people really like it after the activity. Of course, we use it as, as just sort of a baseline to make sure that people um, 
reestablish some some baseline natural mental state before and after activity so that we it's a really controlled condition but we found that also people just really enjoy the breathing after because it whether it's in, in the morning or at night or whatever it helps them to sort of transition out of that intense exercise state uh, which is really cool and probably a powerful approach that anybody could could use in their in their routine yeah yeah i think maybe maybe particularly for endurance athletes who in my understanding at least can can run pretty significant risks of uh you know heart problems and and all, all kinds of failures that are actually associated with people who don't do any exercise at all just because they're overtaxing their system basically and it's kind of like if you're if you're always on and you know your adrenaline's always pumping you're just you know running four to eight hours a day um you need to have a way to sort of downregulate the system and, and go into to second gear or whatever it is you know yeah yeah certainly breathing is absolutely it's a, a superpower that just shouldn't be overlooked by both beginners and experts. And in this case, yeah, you know, after exercise, um, the, the potential for it to downregulate for those that need it is super valuable. I think, especially for people who, who yeah, are exercising late at night or potentially who are exposing themselves to large, uh, sort of doses of sympathetic activation, you know, several times or for long durations throughout their day. Cause that's been like a, it's been a focus of so many, yeah, breath work techniques, meditation, breathing, et cetera. And not a lot of people talk about it in exercise or in sport. And so I knew, I thought that there was something there and, and there was a paper that really triggered my curiosity that was done by a group in Japan um, over 10 years ago and, and has not been replicated or, or followed up on, unfortunately, where they had people do, um, it was also slow breathing, but they had, they had people do sort of their normal breathing um, with an equal inhale to exhale. And they also had people do uh, a, a one to two sort of what we should call like, you know, 30, uh, 60 breathing sort of with two times longer exhale than inhale and found some amazing benefits, both, both performance wise, but biochemically in their VO2 and a couple other things but also psychophysiologically, they found uh, lower sympathetic activation and enhanced parasympathetic, activi parasympathetic activation, you know, measured by heart rate variability, a couple of uh, frequency domain indices. And I thought that was pretty, pretty powerful. And then noticing you know, a, a number of other mechanisms that could be at play there, it seems quite intuitive that longer exhales can be valuable during sport. We know that this is valuable for recovery and very useful for, for um, a number of things at rest, but mm -hmm. quite new to be, to be recommending this during sport. Yeah. Yeah. Can we see that as just like a, a mild version of a breath hold um, in physiological terms? Uh, potentially. Um, I think it's more akin to actually slow breathing perhaps to the first breathing strategy that we talked about. So it, that longer exhale gives a bit more time for the extraction of the oxygen in the in-breath. Mm -hmm. that's, that's one aspect. Um, and it also perhaps allows for um, just better clearance, better CO2 clearance um, mm -hmm. as we get a, a fuller exhale. And potentially if that exhale is, is somewhat uh, forced, and, and I shouldn't really say forced because that's, 
That's more than is desired, but if it's a little bit of a push, then it also includes more activation of the expiratory muscle musculature, which is um, inherently beneficial by itself. So if you do very long exhales, that is a, that is a mechanism to get the breath hold, right? So some people um, can achieve the same, the same potent stimulus of that, of that hypoventilation of that breath hold training by doing yeah very, very long exhales where maybe you have a sharp inhale followed by the longest exhale possible. And, and during, during exercise that, that actually could be more, um, more approachable. It could feel easier than simply a full fast out breath and then holding with empty lungs. So perhaps even if it's the same sort of total time without an in-breath, it could feel easier if that's a, a, a slow, you know, 20 second exhale, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And we, again, we, we come back to this, this difference between um, making things as efficient and calm as possible, or mm -hmm. then when we extend that long enough, we're artificially increasing stress, which is going to make things a lot less pleasant, but in the long term, probably going to have really great uh, hormetic benefits in terms of making the system more resilient and more efficient. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So almost, almost opposite mechanisms, but interestingly similar outcome. Yeah. 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 I mean, the way I think of it is kind of one is one is increasing efficiency and thereby performance within the moment. And another mm -hmm. is, is it's, you know, it's like using, using weights. Right, uh, you know, if you yep. strap some some weights on your wrists and your your ankles, you're obviously going to decrease your performance in the moment. It's going to be less pleasant, but by the increased load, you're you're making your system stronger, more resilient. So when, yeah. once you take them off, you, you're going to go. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's it. And that's um, as you mentioned, I think at the very beginning, that was another breathing technique that we unpacked is actual resistance training for the breathing muscles. Right, mm -hmm. this has been looked at for over 20 years, people adding, you know, the, the training masks or the power breathe, the, the standalone devices that um, claim to, to strengthen the respiratory muscles. Those were highly debatable, very controversial for a long time, but it appears now quite clear that those actually work, <laughs> which is kind of crazy that the exact protocols, how to use them and what dose is most effective, right? The dose response relationship that, that deserves its own discussion, right? There's a bit of nuance there of how to use these best for benefit, but um, yeah, we can do resistance training for the breathing muscles and the breath holding or, or the other mechanisms that we talked about. Those are, yeah, sort of a, a, a surrogate, a different type of, of, of training, right? A, similar to resistance training, but of course the stimulus is biochemical instead of biomechanical, we should yeah. say. Yeah. Um, yeah, but same, same principle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so let's talk about nasal breathing. How does that play into all of this? Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. So this is, it's funny cause this is kind of new to me as like, as being so evidence-based we'll mm -hmm. say. Of course, we see, you know, babies breathe out of their nose by default. And we are often instructed to do this by maybe a, a knowledgeable 
parent or teacher or definitely a good yoga teacher or, or breath instructor in, in whatever other domain. Um, but in exercise, you know, I was told by my exercise physiology professor, what was that, 13 years ago, that we should breathe out of whatever airway that we feel we need to, that our body knows when to automatically switch to mouth breathing. And that's a, that's a requirement, actually, when we're exercising, especially at higher intensities, because we need to get enough air. And after pouring through the papers and really seeing what's been done, and also a lot of the now, we'll say cultural momentum towards, towards nasal breathing in, you know, give it some credit, CrossFit in, um, in a number of other breathwork domains, it's gaining, it, people are finally recognizing that, oh yeah, nasal breathing has its own value. And mm -hmm. perhaps the most fundamental one is simply that it's a filter, you know, when, especially for those living us, those people living in cities or, or in other unclean environments, your nose filters the air and that has tremendous measurable health consequences. We know that, that nasal breathing is actually extremely valuable just at rest for filtering dirty air. And as well, it of course humidifies it. It warms and cools the air. The, the intricate maze of sinuses in our inside of our nose does amazing things for the air that really decreases the stress that air does on our airway. Mm -hmm. So this is particularly relevant for, for exercise because a large number, probably 30, even 40% of exercisers experience some exercise-induced we shouldn't say exercise-induced asthma. That term has fallen out of favor, but airway stress, right? And, and the symptoms can mimic asthma, and that is directly related to the irritation of the, ear, the airway resulting from fast, heavy breathing. And breathing through the nose can avoid that because it humidifies the air. It can warm the air, for example, when it's cold out. And those are, those are, are, are components in an environment that can be really stressful to the airway. You know, hot or cold, dry air is very stressful on the airway and the nose can avoid that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is something a lot of people don't talk about because they don't want to be accused of, I don't know, racism or something. But it, but I think if you just look at the, the distribution of populations in different environments, people who are closer to the equator generally mm -hmm. have wider airways in their nostrils. It's much easier for them to breathe nasally for people whose genetics come from either desert regions or you know the extremes of the globe in, in either place where there, where there's uh, either very hot dry air or very cold dry air we've evolved yep. to have narrower noses it's specifically to do exactly what you're saying to, to change the quality of the air before it gets into our airways and into our, our lungs which is you know great in those environments but puts us at a severe advantage when it comes to, I don't know, running, running and, and breathing nasally, you know, and I've got, I've got yeah. friends here, uh, people who I've worked with and trained with whoever from Senegal and their nasal passageways are literally like three times larger than mine. And for them, nasal breathing is just, it's the easiest thing in the world, you know? And for me, I've always got to, you know, I'm figuring out different systems. I got the breathe right strips, trying to open up the airways and, you know, and yeah. using the neti pot to clean things out before I go running and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, there's yeah, a significant, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, and there's, there's a significant genetic component there where that makes me wonder because, um, okay. So, so my understanding is that by breathing through the nose, we're, we're forcing a, 
ourselves to breathe a, a, a lower volume of air, right? So it's it's sort of a, a proxy for for breathing more slowly. We're also getting nitrous oxide infused in the air, which is going to make us more yes. efficient with the oxygen that we have. It's a, a vasodilator. It's going to make the oxygen diffuse more efficiently in the body. Um, yeah. But my understanding is that then the benefit is that it's uh, for the for the nervous system at least is it's helping us to stay in the parasympathetic state, right? And and yep. my yep. question is potentially indirectly, yes, yeah. But so then, how much of that is counteracted if, for me, for example, uh, slightly congested, running uphill, trying to do nasal breathing, it's like very labored, very forced. Um, so as far as hormetic stress goes, I think it's great, mm. but as far as, uh, performance efficiency goes, it seems like the effects on me with my system are going to be very different from the guy next to me from Senegal, who's doing it. No problem. You know, is that fair? Or? Yeah. 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 Potentially. So I think you're describing different situations. Yeah. If, if you can, so yes, if you can achieve, we'll, we'll say if you can maintain nasal breathing for extended durations that without feeling that accumulating oxygen debt, then you have found a, a sustainable breathing strategy that yes, will, will reap plenty of performance and psychological benefits. So the, nit the nitric oxide is, the nitric oxide is huge because for example, it, it, uh, it also just expands the airway and prevents the airway from, from constricting, especially as you reach higher levels of intensity or feel more airway stress due to cold or dry air. Mm -hmm. um, it also, because it's a smaller airway, uh, you, you must, it, it, it does indirectly cause slower breathing, which we know is associated with lower sympathetic activation, higher parasympathetic activation. So you get this, this secondary impact of deeper breathing, which we know has all the, all these other benefits that we've already described. Um, if you cannot maintain the nasal breathing uh, without an accumulating oxygen debt, without feeling that need, that urge to breathe, then you're probably under breathing. And then yes, you're, you're, you're getting more of the biochemical stress of that hypoventilation that we've always described. And that, that is, that is different than we, then we do not experience the same benefits that we've described, but rather a different set a different set of them. And, and you're also describing, I think if it's uphill sprints, et cetera, those are, that's a higher intensity sort of activity that um, I would not, well, I think deserves a different conversation than the one that we usually recommend nasal breathing for is simply low intensity activity. If you can maintain it, you know, in, during an easy jog, then, then your jog will feel even easier. Um, and, and, and by the way, that, that, nasal breathing is, is self-manifesting. The more you do it, the easier it gets. Yeah. Right. Cause that, that, that nitric oxide that the nose releases also helps open up the nose even more. Mm -hmm. And, and that flaring of the nostrils, right. The, that, that conscious opening of them, which eventually can become unconscious and habituated, um, by the way, is a learned skill. That is, that is something that, that, begets itself even more and perhaps that's something that your uh, senegalese friends have have learned whether consciously or unconsciously over the years of using their nose yeah 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 though i mean the way i think of training in general is there's almost two different complementary pathways one is the sort of 
gradual improvements, like you're saying of, you know, just slow, easy jogging, like building your base, whatever you can talk about that in terms of breathing, muscular strength, you know, endurance, whatever you want. And then there's sort of like step function improvements when you have these, mm -hmm. these really intense interval training. And mm -hmm. it, it's, it, I mean, the, the subjective sensation for me is I feel like I'm like breaking through a wall, right. Where like I can, so, so just like from, from my farm here, I just have a, a run that I do very regularly. Mm -hmm. And after I've sort of had an off season or you know, there's a few years where I wasn't running at all because just I had a young son and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I get to these points where like, I would just more than thinking about heart rate, timing, anything like that. It was like, how high can I go before I need a rest? And <laughs> it, it felt like I could like the, even if I was suffering a lot and like really wanted to stop, if I just push an extra 10, 20 meters, like I'd broken through that wall. And the next time I'd be able to get there and push a little bit higher, a little bit higher. Yep. Yep. And so I, I feel like I, I try and sort of combine those two of like, okay, building the base, building the sort of the, the capacity at uh, an easy, comfortable pace, but then punctuating that with what I think of as hormetic stress of just really pushing hard, breaking through a, a barrier. And then mm -hmm. it's like that, bar that barrier is gone. Then the next time I've got a new one to push through, you know, but, but I don't know. Yes, yeah. that's, yeah. It's just my, my subjective, subjective experience of it, I guess. Um, yeah, no, that's cool. Um, I, I would imagine that those, those, especially like strong physiological stressors provide a, yes, yeah, so more like stepwise improvement, or at least one that feels like that perhaps because of more psychological mechanisms than, mm -hmm. than truly physical ones. You know, the, the physiological improvement is, is um, quite gradual in most domains. And, and we rarely see somebody really jump their fitness in any big way, unless really committing to say a six or a 12 week cycle with, with very enhanced and dedicated uh, amounts of stress and recovery. Um, but there's probably a value here too. And this, this gets a little outside of my domain, but very strongly in my interests, at least. I think that there's a lot of immeasurable benefit to simply, to simply breaking these boundaries of stress. And, and again, you talk about that hormesis and like, um, and the, and the benefits of simply, uh, of conscious, large doses of, of physical stress, there's probably, there's probably stepwise incre incremental benefits to, to experiencing suffering, to overcoming suffering and to, to um, sort of embracing it and being able to deal with that discomfort. Yeah. I would guess that that, that stepwise improvement is more of a, is more of a psychological barrier that you've, that you've surpassed. Yeah. Yeah. could be, could be. Yeah. The, the thing I, I always come back to in that regard is if you look at sort of the history of ultra running, um, mm. you know, 50 years ago and in, in the Western world, at least it was considered impossible basically mm. to run anything longer than a marathon. And the first people to do it at, at a high level were all drug addicts and alcoholics, um, or at least had a, a very long history of that. And many of them used running basically as their new addiction. Right. And that the, the profile of the average ultra runner has changed quite a bit since then, but like, you know, you, you see this again and again, where there's sort of, you know, quote unquote, scientific evidence that something's impossible. 
then someone does it, remove the psychological barrier, and it's like, oh, wait, well, if he could do it, then I can too, you know? And, and then all of a sudden that record gets broken again and again. And and to me, it, it seems like, I mean, when I, I think of the sort of, yeah, the, the first ultra runners and their sort of mentality, I mean, I think a huge part of it is just, you know, I'm not going to listen to what they tell me. I'm going to do whatever I feel like. But I think there's also probably a lot of previous uh, sort of training for the nervous system in terms of stress resilience. If you've been doing, you know, cocaine and getting drunk for every night for the past 30 years, like, yeah, by some measures, that's that's very unhealthy. But w- when we're talking specifically about resilience to stress and that ability to just keep pushing, I think that's probably actually pretty good training, you know. Um, which yeah, is why I've been experimenting with heroin. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear that's real good for ultra ultra performance. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I, yeah. What you're talking about, we also saw that, for example, Bannister with the four minute mile almost 60 years ago, and uh, and yeah, there's probably value in just in 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 knowing a barrier can be surpassed, can be broken, right? And once, mm-hmm. for example, with Bannister, once his peers saw that it was possible to break the four minute mile, then that kept getting broken over and over and over for the next years and, and continues to be broken and pushed. And, and once there seems to be some, yeah, it's conscious, unconscious, there seems to be some awareness in the brain of, of yeah, once we know that a barrier no longer exists or, or can be surpassed, then, then it, it, it ceases to be to govern our performance as much. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, super interesting how or if drugs could contribute to that. Yeah. Um, but we know that breathing can. And yeah. for me, for example, having, having experienced the first real breath hold training during running, which was incredibly painful and disorienting, you know, it, ever since then it felt easier. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not because my chemo sensitivity or my ventilatory efficiency, you know, had this huge stepwise improvement, but it was all mechanisms just up here that, yeah. that, oh yeah, I I've experienced that pain. I know what it feels like. I can go through that again. You know, there's less, there's less unknown and uncertainty. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stress, but I know what to expect. Yeah. And that has that has bled into other other elements of my athletic career that that um, I find incredibly productive, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my understanding of that is that uh, you know there's there's a part of our brain that you know gets nervous and wants to protect ourselves, and you know the survival instinct kicks in. And, uh, you know, once we know either through direct experience or through, you know, seeing the example of, of Bannister or, you know, whoever it is, then it's like that part of the brain can kind of quiet down. It's like, no, I, this is okay. He could do it. He did it. So I can do it too. Or you've done it once you can do it again. You know, and, and mm-hmm. I guess t- to me, that's, that's interesting specifically in terms of breathing, because I do a lot of breath work, um, out, outside of the athletic realm for more sort mm-hmm. of personal development and, you know psychological purposes and stuff. And it seems to me that there are definitely breathing protocols that have a similar effect on the mind in terms of quieting the mind, quieting the sort of analytical judgmental parts of the mind, getting into a very sort of instinctive flow state. 
And it, mm-hmm. it seems to me just based on my own personal experimentation that if I can get into that state with running and breathing is, is a component of that, then I have like unlimited stamina. All of a sudden things get easier. You know, I, you yeah. get into this, this other realm of like, before you were focused on, oh, this hurts, that hurts, you know, oh, I'm tired, maybe this is too long, maybe I need some gel, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, all that just kind of shuts down and you just enter into this state of like the body just goes. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it seems to me that, it, you know, that this, this happens sort of naturally and all ultra runners have had these types of experience and, and even further than that into sort of out of body experiences, spiritual experiences, you know, and there's no accident mm-hmm. that in many tra- traditions throughout the world, long distance running has been a spiritual practice. And, you know, arguably that's part of our evolutionary history as, as humans, but, it, but it just, it seems to me that perhaps another way to think about breathing in all of this, rather than, uh, you know, directly an effect on, on physiology or on, on, uh, the autonomic nervous system is getting into that, that mental state into that mm-hmm. flow state that allows the the body to just kind of do its thing without the prefrontal cortex interference, basically. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And we know, yeah. So <laughs> flow phenomenology, super interesting. And, and we know well-studied and very relevant to running. I mean, running has all these, amazing cultural and historical roots right when we think of of course the tarahumara in in mexico and and you know in endurance running hunting in africa which is still still practiced by a number of hunter-gatherer tribes um it, it has incredible cultural significance and 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 spiritual significance and it's you know it's done as a group and it's done for for very specific purposes in specific ways, and and yeah, holds incredible incredible significance for those for those people. And and um, there's probably also anthropological roots for for all humans in running. And we know that it's natural; it's built into us. You know, there was a book about this, of course, 15 years ago, "Born to Run," yeah, evidencing you know with evidence that a number of structures in our body, just like the Achilles tendon, were built to run. And, and the diaphragm is also probably that case. You know, we have this, this vertical thorax that's organized in such a way that happens to be super efficient for running and for breathing. And we can actually breathe independently of the rhythm of our steps, which is something most mammals cannot do. So most mammals have phase-locked breathing where they must breathe, they must inhale as they extend their limbs and they must exhale as they collapse their limbs this is the case for almost all quadrupeds yeah humans don't have this this restriction and yet humans do often synchronize the breathing so this is the sync that we talk about in the paper uh locomotor respiratory coupling by its by its technical term and that's probably quite linked to the flow experience of, of running you know much less just the simple sort of rhythm of running where we know that that not only is, is physical exertion and, and some um, objective in mind influencing flow states in humans, but also rhythmicity. And anything with a rhythm is likely to inspire flow. And of course, of course, running has that. And maybe we can even enhance that, that rhythmicity with the breathing. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what really 
that's what really lights me up is 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 that idea of 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 even um, it, augmenting the existing rhythm with mm-hmm. with a bit more conscious. So that's cool. So so if we're saying you know what what people love to say, you want to run at a, a 180 steps per minute, right? We're obviously if we're slowing down our breath doing deep breathing, we're not going to be breathing 180 times a minute. I mean that's a way to get you'll get exhausted in, in half a minute. Um, no. so, so by rhythmicity, then would you mean timing your breath to say every four steps or every eight steps or, or it's, it's not necessarily a one-to-one ratio, but it's just a set ratio and in, in creating that cadence in your mind and creating a relationship between your pace and your breathing. Right. Okay. Right. So we often first, maybe it's helpful to just, uh, check in on what is normal. So a normal breathing rate during running is anywhere from 20 to 60 breaths per minute. And that depends on, in, on the intensity of the running, of course, 60 being closer to maximal and also individual constraints. Women tend to breathe faster. Children breathe faster because they have smaller lungs. They have to, um, and a number of other populations, etc. We, Lots of people already couple their breathing. This is a this is a an automatic and natural uh, phenomena that occurs in lots of runners already. Mm-hmm. Especially, it seems to be more prominent in more experienced runners. So there seems to be some learning effect where more running you do happens to yeah encourage us to breathe in sync with our steps. Mm-hmm. So. We often the most common uh, the most common coupling ratios in the in the literature are four to one and six to one. We think of steps per breath, right? Mm-hmm. So four to one means yeah, four steps per breath, um, or rather two steps during the inhale, two steps during the exhale. If you have a step rate of one eighty, which is pretty common in let's say a a trained endurance runner that's that's a little bit um, high amongst all runners, but that's often a recommended step rate for running technique, then that mm-hmm. results in a breathing rate of 45, right? One eight, four steps per breath, 180 steps, that's 45 breaths per minute. That's a, that's a pretty fast breathing, but that's also an appropriate, we should say, or an, a normal breathing rate during fast running if you're, if you're running uh, an 800 or 1600 meters, for example, in, in track. And that's where perhaps that's a good intro to like thinking we can actually use this mechanism to more easily control our breathing and to cue slow breathing. Yeah. Six steps per breath for a step rate of 180 is a breathing rate of 30. That's a big slowdown. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's 30% slower than the four to one. And that's pretty useful. That's pretty powerful. We know that that slowing by itself is, is, is valuable. And that's also potentially going to, going to provide a limiter on our pace, maybe, maybe steer us towards a more sustainable pace, not only being more efficient, but also, um, yeah, just being more consistent mm-hmm. in our pacing. And that's super cool. And then we can also use this, of course, to, to cue those other breathing techniques that we've already talked about as well by using, for example, in an odd ratio to get longer exhales than inhales, right? And 
that four to one is is I like to I like to actually use the terminology of two to two, two mm-hmm. steps per inhale, two steps per inhale. Imagine we could also do two to three, two steps per inhale, three steps per exhale. Yeah, this this can be hard to count for people, but it um, it does give us an, uh, a reliable way to 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 achieve that that longer exhale throughout our run, which is super cool. Yeah. Yeah. For me personally, I, I get, uh, it's, it's a big challenge for me to count what I've done actually just using like really simple software created basically like a metronome for myself, where I just yeah. go boom, 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 boom. And that's just yeah. two inhales and a long exhale. And that's, mm-hmm. that's the way I found that it helps me to sustain a, a pretty good pace um, yep. for, for the, for the longest amount of time, you know, and it's, things get really complex when you're running on trails and you've got, you know, terrain to deal with uphill, downhill, it gets a lot yep. more complicated, but as, as far as like flat ground running, that for me is, is currently the winning combination. Um, yeah. I ex- expect that to change as, as, you know, uh, as my body adapts, but yep. that's, yep. that's, a, that's another tool, you know, with really simple technology, you can kind of just create your own MP3 and, and then you yeah. don't have to think about it. You don't have to be counting. Yeah. yeah, certainly. So the counting can be difficult for people. Uh, it probably gets easier over time. You know, sometimes just the sounds, if you make, if you're making audible breathing sounds yourself, sometimes the, the sort of music of your breathing mm-hmm. can be a bit easier than, than actual, actual counting. Yeah. Um, it's too bad that there doesn't exist an app yet to support people in performing this. Because we know that, yeah, focusing on it can actually detract from some of the benefits of it, right? Because the cognitive load makes breathing techniques less efficient, at least in the short term. Yeah. Um, but given the power of this and its ability to, yeah, to help control slower breathing, breath ratio, other things, um, and also coupling has its own independent benefits of, of um, actually reducing the work of breathing and a couple other things for its synchronization. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, I mean, can't share too many details yet, but we're, we're, we're trying to build this app right okay. now Great. so that we can, we can actually help support people in synchronizing their breathing to their steps. And awesome. I think, I think it should be not only evidence-based to really help people perform the technique, but it should also be enjoyable. And it's something somebody should actually could actually want to do and sounds nice and helps people. Yeah. Perhaps and achieve that flow even easier. Um, uh, and, and, and quicker, which is something that often takes people years of running to really find a flow. Maybe we can nudge people towards it, you know, after just a few sessions, yeah, that's a, right. that's a, that's a stretch, but that's, that's the aim. Awesome. Awesome. That's great to hear. I look forward to that. Yeah. And you, you, you mentioned the, you know, what you call in the paper phonation making noise, you know, and that's, yeah. it's, that's part of the, you know, the active exhale, right. And it's when you're, I mean, can you just tell us more about that? How does, how does that making noise tie into keeping the rhythm? Like what kind of effect does that have? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I put it in the active exhale because it seemed like the most fitting place Mm-hmm. but it could also belong it could be its own breathing technique by itself um yeah, yeah this was interesting because lots of 
breathing techniques, breathwork techniques, types of meditation, et cetera, use um, audible exhale noises um, for their own purposes. And they've been doing that for thousands of years, but there's, there wasn't really a lot of evidence or justification for why until, until recently. So I found that very curious. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also, as I mentioned, and I think you commented already that it's, it's funny and that's kind of cool by itself. Um, but there is, there is, there are specific reasons that it seems to be valuable. Um, one being it, it, it increases the, the release of nitric oxide, which we already talked about is a vasodilator. It dilates the airway. Um, so simply humming or adding some sort of noise or even singing perhaps to the exhale could be beneficial by itself. Maybe it makes nasal breathing easier. Maybe it opens the airway a bit more to prevent that airway restriction that happens at high exercise intensities. Um, I find this super cool. And perhaps it also, for the, for the coupling, maybe it makes it easier to count as well, where, you know, humming, for example, also provides a bit of airway resistance. So it slows down the exhale. Maybe it makes it easier to keep a, a rhythm to your breathing when you have just that sound in the exhale. You know, we, we naturally gravitate towards ryth- rhythmicity. So when you have a, maybe it makes it easier to pace the inhale and the exhale, um, we haven't haven't studied that, but I think there's something there. Yeah. And what about stimulation of the the vagus nerve? Is that something you've looked at? Not specifically with phonation. Okay. There, there. I think I saw one or two studies that that did look at that at least at rest. Yeah. Um, that is fairly difficult to look at during exercise, yeah. simply because of the invasiveness of of direct. Um, of direct observation of neurological activity during exercise. You know, you can do that perhaps in the brain regions with EEG or with, uh, fMRI, et cetera. But, um, we can indirectly infer, infer some, some things based on, on ECG derived, like heart rate variability measures. Mm-hmm. We can say something about vagus activity. We haven't looked at phonation really yet, but we, we have looked at act at the active exhale, longer exhales, and yeah. at coupling and how, how that affects um, um, at least parasympathetic drive. Yeah. And, we, and, and that's some proxy to, to vagus nerve stimulation for sure. Right. Um, I'd be really curious to look at, yeah, sort of the pre-post changes. And that's something we're trying to look at from some, some post studies. You know, can we, yeah, can we get, can we alter vagus nerve activity, um, especially sort of, immediately after exercise or hours after exercise by, by specific breathing techniques? I would mm-hmm. speculate yes. That would, that would require a lot of work, I think, to really, to really prove, let's yeah. say. Yeah. yeah. And what, what about visualization? Have you looked at that at all? <sighs> Not me specifically, but a number of colleagues have, have, yeah, looked at visualization quite a bit. So I, I work closely with the psychology department here at my mm-hmm. university, University of Salzburg. And um, they've been focused a lot on clutch state, which is sort of a, an analog, but a very different uh, focus than flow state. Uh, something that's a bit more sort of make it happen than let it happen, shall we say. And, and very relevant to high performers, especially at, uh, in events and at competitions. 
Um, and they, they look at visualization quite a lot. Um, for me, in, in my own work, I think, it's, um, I, think it's, I think it's quite useful to, I think it's quite useful potentially in cueing the, the, the deep strategy and a couple of the others that, that um, we've looked at using like a, like a breath game, like a gamification of, of visualizing sensor signals to actually try to instruct breathing techniques. So that's kind of cool. I don't know if that's the visualization you meant, um, but yeah. I, I guess that I'll take it away from here. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 that's great. That's great. No, I think, yeah, visualization, it's a huge topic. It can mean all kinds of things. I think typically when people talk about it in a sports context, it's, it's about, you know, pre-visualizing what you're going to do before you do it, visualizing the goal, all of that kind of thing. And in the, the sort of yogic world, in the breath world, it's much more about tying your awareness to your breath and, mm -hmm. and creating a, a like a stronger sense of interoception right and so that and that's the way i've actually been experimenting with it more is mm -hmm. as i breathe like visualizing the breath coming in feeling it like if i'll do it often if i have uh, like my right knee is often a little bit sensitive right I, that's the kind of mm -hmm. the first part where i start to feel when i'm getting tired right and so i experiment using my breath to kind of you know, it sounds, it sounds crazy. I don't know how else to explain it, but, but somehow I send the energy to my knee, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I, I don't want to explain it in any other terms, but it works, you know, and it helps me, it changes the sensation. Uh, the, the feeling is different yeah. both during exercise and afterward, you know, and, and it's something that I've, I've experimented a lot with, with in terms of cold exposure and doing mm -hmm. sort of tumo meditation and, and getting, you know, cultivating your inner fire, sending the heat out to, to different parts of your body or with more different kinds of tantric practices, like, like sexual practice where you mm -hmm. actually, you, you know, what I always tell people, you don't have to believe it. You know, I don't know if I believe it or not, but it works. Right. And you can, it's not, you don't have to take anyone's word for it, but once you combine breathing with visualizing sort of where that energy is going, you can have a mm -hmm. profound and almost immediate effect on your subjective sensation of what's happening. So you can stay in the cold water a lot longer. You can have a totally different uh, sexual experience um, doing physical exercise. You can tap on really mm -hmm. deep reserves of, of stamina. Um, you know, it's, it's something as far as I know that hasn't really been explored scientifically. I don't even know how to go about doing that, but it, it does seem like if we're, if we're talking about, exercise, especially sort of longer, longer term endurance, uh, exercise mm -hmm. and breath work visualization to me seems like a very sort of rich area to explore how to combine these different physiological and psychological components that, that even if it's hard to measure exactly what a person's visualizing, I think it would be definitely possible to, to measure what are the effects, you know, in terms of VO2 max, in terms of performance, in terms of you know, all kinds of stuff. Sure. Sure. So first, just because it's difficult to measure or impossible to measure doesn't mean it's not real, right? We know that there's plenty of phenomena that, uh, that might never be investigated or explained in, in the scientific literature. Mm -hmm. And they're still valid, of course. The, you know, maybe we don't have the the means to, to measure or interpret or understand them yet, 
but of, of course they still have value. Mm. You know, sec- second, the placebo effect is real. <laughs> and yeah. al- also it's not a trick. Like the placebo effect is real and we should, we should acknowledge it actually as a valuable um, strength of mind that believing in something can bring power to it. So mm. even if, even if there isn't a measurable effect or if objective, you know, quantifiable benefits are absent, that doesn't mean that, that the feeling of something working or being real is, is invalid. Yeah. You know, it, it, to believe in something and feel that it works, you're right. <laughs> so... <laughs> So if you feel that you can breathe and send the breath or send the energy to some place and, and, and you feel the effect of that, then go for it. it you're, you're right. And that is an important um, mechanism to take advantage of if it works for you. And I, I think that there is something to that. You know, it's hard to deny that for thousands of years, tantric practices, yogic, breath work, meditation the idea of like sending breath to a body region or to a, an injury or something else is, is, is that, that must hold water, right? That, mm. that they've been talking about this and doing it for so long. I can't say how that would work. I, I, don't, I don't know enough perhaps about the spiritual and the physiological background of that, mm. but neurologically i think it i think it makes sense i think that if you believe it then it's real and um there there you can definitely send the breath to different parts of the of the thorax you can you know maybe doing it with me now you can breathe and if you you can feel maybe you're expanding specifically the the posterior rib cage as opposed to the anterior rib cage and we can change those Mm -hmm. mechanics as well Mm -hmm. you know who's who's to say that we can't with slower breathing and with greater parasympathetic activation you know send more of that to one to one region than the other Mm -hmm. i I don't i don't think that's preposterous we know that that you know trained monks for example can can control body temperature and heart rate in ways that we thought were previously impossible mm-hmm. and and you know for example in in wim hof as well there seems to be some ability to control immune system response that's to me quite shocking sort of but obviously not um not impossible mm-hmm. so yeah who knows i mean we're <laughs> despite that people have been breathing since the beginning of time and and uh doing breath work for thousands of years, we're still sort of at the tip of the iceberg. So knowing how these things work and what, what is possible with them. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I guess that's, I mean, that, that dovetails really nicely into something I want to talk with you about in terms of finding the balance between sort of measurement and feeling right. For, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming we're talking about a a non-scientist now, you know, just a, a person who's, we'll say a runner or a yogi or, you know, whoever it is just Mm -hmm. interested in 
and sort of pushing the limits of their own performance. You know, you see a, a pretty wide uh, spectrum, even among like elite athletes, you know, and I don't have firsthand knowledge, but, it, you know, according to, to what they say, at least, you know, Kipchoge basically doesn't measure hardly anything at all. It just kind of goes for it. And then you have the, yeah. the Norwegian brothers, I forget their names, Ing Ingaman or whatever, who are doing, you know, blood samples between every yeah. interval run. Um, yeah. you know, everything's measured down to the last detail and, and done, you know, exactly according to, to the formula. And, and I guess I'm, I'm just curious for you as a scientist and an athlete, um, you know, how do you sort of weigh in on that? Where do you, where do you personally sort of put the balance and, and yeah, what would you, I don't, I don't mean, maybe a recommendation is, is too much, but just, I guess I'm just curious to, yeah. to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I love this topic because I think there's, I think there's beauty in both. Hmm. You know, you 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 have, you have camps and and people who try to fall to one side more than the other, and that's that's unhelpful. I I think, hmm. and in fact, that's counterproductive because we know that these things are are often quite linked. You know, objective metrics are very often closely correlated with subjective ones. So we know that breathing is a really good indicator for people of a run going well or feeling good, right? Mm -hmm. Breathing is highly correlated with, with perceived effort, breathing rate specifically. And yeah. so we, we know that those things feeling and, and this objective variable breathing rate are, are closely tied and you could, you can predict one by measuring the other. Mm -hmm. And we also know, for example, that breathlessness, dyspnea in the clinical literature is, is closely correlated with fast breathing, right? As soon mm -hmm. as you start breathing faster, you often feel short of breath. And that's part of the motivation for us um, trying to outline these breathing techniques that can perhaps eliminate that feeling of, of being out of breath, yeah. right? So, so we know that these things are tied, right? feeling and the, the, the measurable objective variables, these things are closely related. And so instead of ignoring them, I think we should be aware that they're related and, and that's a good place to start. So I measure things because right now I'm working in science and we need to publish papers and demonstrate that things worked or didn't and how and why and how much. But there's also a growing push in our group and our project and also in, in, in sports science in general and in a lot of other fields to measure and report both, let's say the objective and also the feeling, subjective yeah. metrics. So yeah. we found it very important in, in some of our recent running and breathing studies to not only measure the breathing, to measure, yeah, how much oxygen, how much CO2, you know, abdominal versus thoracic breathing, but also ask people, Hey, how did that feel? You know, how would you rate your breathlessness zero to 10? And then also just expand into a more open format of like an interview, you know, saying, Hey, how did that go? Yeah. How did that feel? Tell me how that went can you expand a bit there? And, and that's, we found there's so much richness there to just asking people to, 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 to comment on, the feeling of, of a run or of a breathing technique as well as measuring it because, and this is, this is what I, my ultimate recommendation perhaps is that's, that's maybe the best place to start of 
some, just ask people how they feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I know a, a, a couple coaches that I very much, that I, that I respect highly who before quantifying uh, uh, workload, let's say for their football or rugby teams, mm-hmm. they ask athletes, Hey, how do you feel? How did that go? Mm-hmm. And before talking to the sports scientists to say, Hey, tell me about the, tell me about the, the, you know, workload ratios that we're at right now. Where's the team? You know, who do I need to sit? Where, what are our injury risks like? Whatever. Ask how they feel. Mm-hmm. Because for me, for example, personally, I would, I would, I, I find it critical to reflect first on how something felt before I ever look at the, the heart rate, the training peaks data, whatever else. Although I'm interested in that too. I think the feeling is potentially much more valuable because you can have those can at some point decouple and you can have, especially for example, when you're overtrained or when you have a lot of interaction from what might be happening during your day, during work, or you had a crap night of sleep, whatever, um, mm-hmm. those can, those can decouple. So it's important for first, I think, to just reflect on how something felt yeah. and then if you need, if, you know, if you're really trying to perform, if you're a high performer or something is, is wrong, you know, in, in, your, in your health and wellness or whatever, then maybe it's worth, worthwhile to look at those quantifiable metrics, but start with the feeling. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. And I think it's, it's for people listening as well. Um, you know, feeling can be nuanced and complex. It's not just like, if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. You know, there, there is value to part of feeling is knowing when to push and how hard to push, you know? And, and I think it's, it's sort of a refined taste for, for most of us because our new normal now is sedentary lifestyle, constant 20 degrees with the belly full. And if you're just listening to that feeling, you're never going to get off the couch. Right. So, so, I mean, I think one way to think of it is, is sort of, um, you know, metaphor using, using nutrition or diet, basically the, the, the way you eat changes your microbiome and that changes what you feel hungry for. So if you've been eating fast food for the past 20 years and you're like, okay, I'm just going to listen to my body. What does my body want? It wants more fast food, right? That's not a good way to diet. But if you go through this sort of rough process of resetting your system to its more natural state, doing maybe a a few week cleanse or whatever, Mm -hmm. then you can start listening to your body and then your body will tell you what it actually wants, you know? And I, I think in, in physical exercise, it's, it's, it's sort of similar in terms of once you get a sort of base level and a base understanding of, okay, that's what this kind of tiredness is. Okay. That kind of tiredness was too much. You know, I pushed a little too far now. Now I'm a little bit injured. I'm going to take it easy, whatever. Like once you get that sort of base level of understanding, then it becomes much easier to listen to your body. And, it, and I think Killian Jornet is, you know, obviously uh, an amazing runner and he's, yeah. And, and he, he hasn't had a trainer since he was 17 years old, right? He does everything himself. He spends hours every day reading scientific papers. He's, you know, yeah. he, he, he does it all. Um, and, and the way he describes it is, is use the data to help you interpret your feelings, right. right? So, so it's this constant conversation between how do I feel? What were the actual results? How do those compare? And it's this for him, a, you know, a decades long process of, of really fine tuning his ability to, into it, what his body needs and how far he's capable of pushing. And then he's always mm-hmm. got the data to, to fall back on and be like, oh, okay, well, my, my, you know, my VO2 max was here. My heart rate was here, whatever, you know? And I, yeah. I guess it's just, yeah, I, I mean, 
both you and he, I think, nicely underlined the, the fact that it's, it's really not helpful to just put ourselves in one philosophical camp and be like, oh, no, I, I believe in science or no, I believe in feeling. It's like, well, we, we can use both, you know, and, yep. and, and they should be complementary, not antagonistic. Yeah, yeah, amen. So on the first one, I mean, for example, when we, on our questionnaires about breathlessness, we ask about the intensity of the feeling and mm -hmm. also the discomfort because those, although related, can be different. Mm -hmm. Some people can, can feel intense breathlessness because they're working hard, but it's not necessarily uncomfortable because they're used to it or because mm -hmm. they embrace the suck. <laughs> they're, it's, it's important to observe both and to acknowledge the value of mm -hmm. both. And then on the second part, yeah, I mean, <laughs> great, great um, reference with Killian Journey. I mean, super interesting to see what he does and what he calls an easy run is just preposterous <laughs> to me, you yeah. know, and, and that whole just labeling it easy, you know, looking on Strava, what he's doing is like, just, just, it, I'm, I'm floored. But um, yeah, he's a good example for that too. And, and I think he, and as well, a couple of athletes that I've worked with, you know, do this uh, sort of reflection first on the feeling, which I think is pretty important. Like, hey, okay, especially for example, if you're training or if you're competing, reflect first on how that felt. Mm -hmm. A simple one, you know, did that feel faster or slower? Mm -hmm. And then, and then look at the data. Do the data also reflect what you expected from the feeling? What if you, what if that felt slow, but it was actually fast, or mm -hmm. vice versa? Mm -hmm. There's probably a lot of richness there. And that's why you don't ignore just ignore one or the other. When you first reflect on that and, and, and have some sort of um, just self-reflection on that. If the data support that, then, then you're gaining awareness. And yeah. you know that's valuable in a ton of ways. If the data don't support that, then, then something's going on. And then there's probably some basis for, um, for, for changing some element of your training or, or in intervening or something else, or maybe there's, yeah, some overtraining or undertraining going on. If your expectations don't meet the reality, right. If the, the qualitative doesn't meet the quantitative. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tons of, tons of value there. And that's a, that's an important takeaway, whether you're a recreational athlete just getting started or whether you're a pro, because even, even a lot of pros struggle with the, this connection between feeling and, and the data. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So we've, we've got, I don't know how you're doing on time. We've got two more aspects to cover in terms of the outline of the paper. Are you, are you sure. game for it? Yeah. Okay. Cool. I got about, I got about 10 minutes. Okay. Okay. We can do it. We can do it. So strength, strength of breathing. Um, yeah. Is this referring to basically like diaphragmatic effort or what, what, you know, what, what does strength actually mean here? Yeah. So well, in, in the paper, we have strength as a, as a technique, right? Or as I've titled it, you know, this is simply respiratory muscle training, yeah. right? So our diaphragm is the, is the primary mover of air in our breathing. It, it, it's responsible for about 70% of the effort of the work of breathing. Okay. And it can be trained like any other muscle, although it's very fatigue resistant and it does not substantially fatigue until we're actually at, at very high exercise intensities or very long durations. 
um, there seems to be a lot of benefit for strengthening it. So yeah, like we already talked about before, there's a number of sort of resistive devices that can be used to improve the, the strength of the, of the respiratory muscles. Um, there's a lot of nuance in how to use them and why to use them. Um, uh, it is sort of contrary to what people used to believe. It is apparently productive for lots of people and especially productive for respiratory limited individuals. So, so females, beginners, elderly, uh, disease patients like COPD and asthma, et cetera. Um, there seems to be a lot of benefit in strengthening the inspiratory muscles, which mm -hmm. is really cool. Mm. Um, so adding breathing resistance actually at rest or as we've outlined in the paper during exercise can be productive. Yeah. There's, a, there's also a subset of breathing techniques in here that I put into strength that I'm not sure belong there, but, but I think are very, very interesting, which is they actually have a title by the person who invented them, the Bilin Ilobi techniques or the Owen Olin Ilobi techniques. Um, a, a group in, in Denver invented these with the goal of decreasing um, airway stress for people with airway limitations. And I found that, that these actually appear to be quite helpful for almost any exerciser. And I, I think they also should be considered uh, respiratory muscle training in, in some way because it's actually deliberately adding your own resistance to your breathing. Hmm. So um, those seem to be pretty cool too. And, could you, and could you give us an example of that? Or I'm not yeah. familiar with them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think it's important to understand the background. A lot of individuals probably at least 10%, maybe up to like 30% experience what's called exercise induced laryngeal obstruction. So, mm -hmm. so your larynx here, um, actually near your vocal cords in, in a lot of people starts to close as they breathe harder and harder during exercise. Mm -hmm. And yeah. some individuals are more prone to this. It especially happens a lot in adolescence, um, and as well in females and the elderly, um, but it can be prevented. So, mm -hmm potentially by mixing nasal and mouth breathing instead of mouth only mm -hmm. or by manipulating the flow profile of the inhale, you can reduce the stress on the larynx, which is pretty, yeah. pretty goofy. So, so an like example, changing the shape of your mouth. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Potentially changing the shape of your mouth or, um, and they give, they give very specific examples in some of their papers. One example is using the tongue against the roof of your mouth to, to force nasal breathing for the first half of the inhale. So maybe it looks and sounds something like this. So mixing, mixing nasal and mouth breathing on the inhale can, um, can get just a little bit of nose breathing and actually sort of resist provide some self-resistance that actually reduces the stress on the airway. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And they've, they've demonstrated with, with real time cameras in the larynx that this, that this works. Hmm. And I, I find that mind blowing. It's really cool that people have directly um, invented and investigated and demonstrated efficacy of such a technique. Yeah. So I, I find I would be remiss to not mention that here. And that's um, a really cool one that, that people could experiment with almost immediately. It's usually taught by a, a trained practitioner. Mm -hmm. um, 
but I think if you read it, if you look into it, potentially you can, you can work on it yourself. A lot of people do this automatically as well. Mm. I've found some mm. people do this sort of naturally without knowing it. Mm. Um, but yeah, super curious. Yeah, that's great. Are you familiar with mewing? The mewing? Technique? Mewing. Yeah. 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 John Mew. Yeah. Um, yeah. Super interesting. I, oh man, that's a whole, that's a whole nother topic. We'll, we'll leave here. for another time. We got, we got to go on yeah. to breath holds. We got to go on to breath holds. <laughs> yes yeah, so, so full lungs empty lungs why why not <laughs> two minutes go the the best recent evidence seems to point to empty lungs because of greater metabolic stress sharper metabolic stress mm-hmm. you get a buildup of co2 quicker which makes the breath holds more efficient and perhaps easier simply because they take less time. So if, if you want, you know, if the main mechanism of breath holding for improving performance and reducing chemosensitivity is CO2 buildup, Mm -hmm. then why not increase the CO2 concentration by blowing out all the oxygen? I, I, that's an oversimplification, but I think that is the main takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. Based on, on my experience, my, uh, I would say it, it might be interesting to think of it in terms of what we're talking about in terms of building a base versus sort of acute hormetic stress where mm-hmm. doing breath holds on the inhale might be a sort of a gentler way to build up, uh, CO2 tolerance over time. Yeah. And sort of yep. once you've reached a certain base level, then doing it on the exhale might be a way to really push hard and, 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 you know, take that extra step without having a panic attack as, as you might have <laughs> on the first time you try. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean this, I, I, you know, luckily I'm in Austria, so I can't be sued like I am in America. You should got to be careful like this for this recommendation, because yes, it can trigger, this can trigger panic attacks and, large doses of, of stress and anxiety in people because it is so unpleasant yeah. and should not be taken lightly. You know, it should really be supervised by somebody who knows what they're doing, a qualified professional in some degree, but yeah, it can be done. It can pr- probably be done safely independently, especially laying on the ground with, without sar- sharp objects around you, you know, <laughs> maybe, Yes, maybe with inhale is a bit of a gentler introduction to to feeling that hypercapnia, right? High high CO two level um, that that yeah can feel like mild suffocation in some cases. Yeah, it's not so mild when you're exercising and doing it, and that's really what we've detailed in this in this last strategy that we recommend in the in the paper. You know, it, when done during exercise, this is incredibly intense, and it yeah. feels. It feels like suffocation. Yeah. It's a big, it's a big dose of hypercapnia. And when done during activity, appears to have even stronger benefits than when done outside of activity. Yeah. However, probably useful for people to learn the strategy to learn what that stress feels like outside of exercise first. Yeah. And so there's probably value to both. You know, I know that a lot of the popular breath holding techniques and and uh, recommendations these days blend both 
and they potentially have their uses. You know, the 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 mechanoreceptor feedback from the from the lung stretch receptors um, mm-hmm. um, is different under under uh, not only under different concentrations of CO two, but also under uh, full lungs versus empty lungs. Mm-hmm. So there's probably different some different um, psychological feedback coming back from those receptors towards the towards the breathing centers. Okay. Um, but there's there definitely needs to be more work done there. You know, a lot of the best work is from free diving, but um, we're only we're only touching the surface of how you know the value of this for non divers and non athletes and how to dose it correctly, the dose response relationship, and mm-hmm. what other benefits could result. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I know I know we're getting close to the end here. Uh, I want to say thank you very much. I really appreciate your insight. And, you know, definitely a lot of practical takeaways. And I, th- I think for me, what it, what's really most valuable is, is just your, your attitude of, of exploration and this sort of, um, you know, through, through feeling subjective experience through data and, and analysis and really combining those two. And I, to me, that's a, it's a really empowering perspective. And I, I think there's, you know, there's so much information out there now from, from people with all kinds of degrees behind their names. Um, mm. but, but oftentimes I find it's, it's almost counterproductive because they're giving us these, these really sort of simplified and reductionist formulas that sort of take away our ability to experiment for ourselves, you know, and, and to me that there's an element of that that's actually anti-scientific because, you know, scientific science is, is an attitude and it's, a, it's an approach and you can do it in a lab, you can do it in your body, uh, you know, you do it all day, every day, however, however you want. And, and to me, I mean, just, you know, in, in everything you say, you're, you're, you're exuding this sort of attitude of, of curiosity and exploration. And, and I love it. I, I really, really, really appreciate it. So thank you for that. Thank you for that. Appreciate the kind words. Yeah. yeah. My pleasure. Anytime. Yeah, and two, two, two last things. One, uh, just for American listeners, neither you nor I are doctors. Uh, if you listen to us and get hurt, it's your own fault. Don't sue us. And, uh, and then I, I have a question for you before we go, because we, we talked about uh, persistence hunting and, you know, the sort of evolutionary roots of running. And actually, I don't, yeah. I don't know if I mentioned it to you before in our previous conversation, but I'm, I'm actually planning a trip to Namibia this August. I'm going to, to run cool. with the, the San people there. So I'm going persistence hunting and I'm actually, I'm, I'm training starting a while ago in terms of metabolic flexibility and, cool. uh, you know, doing, doing long fasts and going for runs and all that kind of stuff. Um, I guess I'm, I'm just curious if, if you were to go to Namibia and run with the San people, what yeah. would you be looking at? What would you be interested in? Ooh, <clears throat> I, if it was me first for myself, I'd probably train my foot core muscles. I'd spend mm-hmm. some time prepping my tissues for such long runs Mm-hmm. Since a lot of us do not spend lots of time on such varied terrain, they, yeah, I'm curious what sorts of footwear that they're using. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a big interest of mine as well. Um, I would, I would, I mean, you need to just go for some long runs and prepare, <laughs> prepare yourself for those, um, for what is probably a radically different daily routine and rhythm of, of life, um, that perhaps 
yeah, it, it, that preparation should not be underestimated. Yeah. I, w- yeah. I would be really curious. So one of the things that very hard to study, but really interested in doing so myself is group dynamics and running mm-hmm. because running is and was a group activity for a long, long time, especially in, in persistence hunting tribes and, and still today in, in let's say sports of cross country. Mm-hmm. And um, yet a lot of people do it solo and are totally out of touch with what it means and feels like to run in a group, mm-hmm. right? We know that there's group dynamics where um, people tend to follow the step patterns of the leader, of the mm-hmm. person in front of them. Mm-hmm. And that's super interesting. Perhaps does it pull people away from their optimal step frequency or do they shift towards a different optimal? And of course, personal to me, I'm curious how like group breathing patterns look, you know, mm-hmm. if, is there a, is there some group coupling that goes on and, and, mm-hmm. and what is, how does that pull people away from, or does it from their normal individual patterns? Mm-hmm. And that's super curious to me, especially when we talk about distances so long as those, you know, done by persistence hunters, 50 K plus potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So very super cool that you're going very curious what you learn. Love to love to talk again after you go yeah we can touch basis on that definitely yeah i'm i'm really interested in those group dynamics and and specifically like the the psychological components of it because if you if you look at you know persistence hunting is running but it's also tracking and you know all reports of it are that it's it's a it's a very spiritual experience it's an out-of-body experience entering into the soul of the animal and there's all kinds of evidence of you know they come to a clearing where Mm -hmm. there's no tracks anymore and they just kind of stop and they're like okay it went that way you know they just intuit it yeah you know and and they run in single file often and the person Mm -hmm. who's in front is like in the soul of the animal that they're following and the person who's behind him his job is to watch the tracks of the person in front of him and once he gets too exhausted, you know, he'll give him a little tap on the shoulder and he'll go behind, mm-hmm. you know, so there's this, this really intense sort of, you know, as we were saying earlier, getting out of the, the sort of the prefrontal cortex out of this sort of judging, um, controlling areas of your mind and entering into like a very deep flow state into a spiritual yeah. state, connecting with, you know, a very sort of primordial part of our, our brains and anatomy. And my, yeah. my sense, my, my hypothesis is that we'll do wonders for endurance and for stamina and, and really, oh, yeah. you know, allow you to push a lot harder and farther. Yeah, certainly. And yeah, super interested in how that sort of group flow state manifests mm. and some of the other phenomenology of that as a, as a, yeah, a different drive and motivation to be running in the first place is, is yeah. quite different than the reason most of us trot along in our familiar city park. <laughs> yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, Great. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Very nice conversation. And uh, yeah, let's catch up after your Namibia runs. Definitely. Definitely. We'll be in touch.